All right, we ready? First Samuel chapter six. Let me, let me try to remind you kind of where we are with this. Remember, Israel has been going through a dark time. In chapter four, they go to war against the Philistines and they lose. And one day, both of their priests, Hophni and Phinehas, die. The ark of the Lord is captured. Eli, the high priest, hears the news that the two sons are dead and that the, the ark of the Lord has been captured and he falls off his chair and he dies. Well, the wife of Phinehas, one of those priests, the daughter-in-law of Eli, hears the news. She goes into labor because she was pregnant. She gives birth to Ichabod and dies in the process. Her son, Ichabod, his name means the glory has departed from Israel or the glory has been exiled from Israel, that it's gone. Now, it's not as if God had departed from Israel. That was what she said. The glory of the Lord had departed, but it was that his power and his presence have surely been pulled back from Israel, and that is in judgment. That is God's judgment on his people. But we see later on that God's glory is still being seen, that it's still active. It's just taking place among the Philistines, those who captured his ark, that they take the ark back to their cities and God just wreaks havoc on them. He knocks their stone gods over, he breaks them to pieces, and he also breaks the men of the cities out with, with tumors, with what the Hebrew actually says is trouble down there, which is probably referring, and we talked about this last week, you may not wanna hear it again, probably referring to hemorrhoids, that he breaks out cities with hemorrhoids so bad that they are terrified of what is going on, that the judgment of God has come down onto the Philistines in that form. You get the tumors, the trouble down there. You get men who die from it and they keep moving the ark around to different cities and hope that peace will come in hopes that the, the, the Lord's judgment would kind of be pulled off of them. But everywhere the ark goes, to every city it enters, the judgment of God comes against them to the point to where the Philistines look to one another and they say, look, we didn't capture the ark of the Lord. The Lord of the ark has captured us. Let's send it back. Let's send it back. Let's get rid of this. And what we see through that is that the Lord was fighting for his people, that he was fighting for his glory, that he is the undisputed God of gods and Lord of lords, that he went to war with the Philistines and he won. And that's what brings us to 1 Samuel chapter six. So if you would, let's read together starting at verse one. It says, the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines for seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what shall we send it to its place? They said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt uh, offering, then you will be healed and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravaged the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps, he will lighten his hand from off of you and your gods and your land. 
Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke. And yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put in a box at its side the figures of gold which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so, and they took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart, and they offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, and which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on the day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of, the, of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them and the people mourned because the Lord has struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim saying, the, Lord, uh, the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Let's pray. Father, this is your word for us today. And we need to hear it. We need to hear from you. So speak, Father, for we are listening. In Christ's name, amen. I have to catch my breath from reading that. Y'all need a break? You good? Seven months. Seven months. That's how long they lasted sending the ark from the Philistine cities from one to the next to the next. Their hope was that they could find peace and they couldn't. And when they finally come to the end of the rope, they call their priests and their diviners together. These would have been more than likely priests of what God? 
of Dagon. Dagon the defeated. And these priestesses, these wizards, these witches, they, they, they say, well, what do we do? What do we do with the ark of the Lord? Surely it can't stay here or we will be destroyed. And even they know, even these pagan priests know that you can't just send it back. So they say, look, if you're going to send it back, you must by all means return to the Lord a guilt offering. Now, what's the guilt offering? Because you know burn offerings, you know sin offerings, you know all these sort of things. The guilt offering is a little more specific when we read the Old Testament. It is an offering you give, not just for sin, but when you have sinned against a holy thing, a holy item like the Ark of God. If you want to read about that, you can turn over to Leviticus 5 and you can read about the, the, the sin offering, the guilt offering there. But because they've done this, they know they can't just send the ark of the Lord back. You can't just say, our bad, we messed up, we shouldn't have done that. But, but we need to learn something from him. We can't do that either, you know? You know, we can't come before a holy God and, and just say, my bad, messed up there, shouldn't have done that. You can't just say, you know what, I'm going to try harder from now on. I learned from my mistakes. I, I'm going to do better. I'm going to do right. Just like you couldn't stand before a judge and say, okay, you got me. I did kill that guy, but I'm doing much better now. It would never work. It would never work. The thing is, our sin must be atoned for. It can't just be forgotten. It can't just be put to the side. And many of us, our scheme for atoning for our sin is just better living. It's just trying harder. We may even put religion in there and just say, God, I know I messed up, so I'm going to start going to church. I'm going to start putting money in the offering plate. We can't do that because it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It will never atone for your sin. And if you come before a holy God thinking that your life, your performance, your duties, your work, your church attendance, your giving, if you think that those things will cover your sin, it will not work. And you will be destroyed by that holy God. So how do you do it? How do you do it? If you can't just come before God and you know that there's sin in your life, what do you do? How can you be forgiven? And listen, there's only one way. Only one. There's no other way. There's no other means, just one. And if you hear nothing else today, hear this. God has made the way that God sent Jesus, his one and only son, to take your sin, to die on the, uh, on the cross in your place, that that's what he has done, that Jesus has taken the sin of all who will trust in him onto his body. He became the sinner. He became guilty for it. He was condemned for it. He died on the cross under the wrath of God and rose again three days later. And the good news comes to us that says, if you will turn from your sin and trust in Jesus, you will be saved. That's what the Bible says. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
So the question we've got to continually ask, because there are people that come regularly that have never heard this, but there are people that come regularly and we forget this, don't we? So let's ask it again. Are you trusting in Jesus alone to save you? Do you know that his blood is enough, that his sacrifice is all that you need? Do you know that he is the only way? Could you sing together what we sing? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but what? Holy lean on Jesus' name. Guys, today is the day. Look to Jesus Christ. Look, these people, these pagans, they know they needed something, but they're still pagans and they're still priestesses. So they say, here's what you need to do. Literally make images of the judgment that he's brought upon you. You have trouble down there? Make a golden image of it. Anybody want that? Five of them. One for every Philistine city over which there is a Philistine lord. And then make five golden mice too. One for every city. Hadn't heard that yet, have we? Like the Bible hasn't even mentioned that, that it wasn't just the tumors. And it wasn't just the terror that the Lord had also sent mice that were a plague on the cities, that they were ravaging the land. What does that sound like to you? Egypt. That it sounds like Egypt. And they say, make images of those. So get five golden tumors, five golden mice. We're going to put them in a box and we're going to send them back with the ark. And perhaps... Maybe, just maybe, he will lighten his hand off of you and he will lighten his hand off your gods and he will lighten his hand off your land. Maybe this will work. But then they say this, but whatever you do, don't harden your hearts today. Don't hear what we're telling you and just think maybe we're gonna be okay. Maybe we should keep them because they said that's what they did in Egypt. That's what Pharaoh did. They thought they could continue to harden their heart and stand against the Lord, and he dealt severely with them, and they lost. They sent the people away. So do not harden your hearts. Send the ark away now. They continue their advice, and they say this, get a new cart and two milk cows that have never been yoked before. They've never pulled a cart before then take their calves and take their calves back home, put them in the, in the shed, you know, and, and, and just see what happens. And then you're going to put a new cart behind these new cows and then put the ark on top of that. Put the box with the golden mice, the golden tumors on top of the ark, uh, on top of the cart. And then we're just going to see what happens. Let's just see what happens. Look what they say in verse nine. Look, if the cows, they leave that area and they go back to their own land, Beth Shemesh, then we'll know that the Lord has done this. But if not, if they don't go back to Beth Shemesh, then we'll know that it wasn't his hand that struck us, that all of this happened by coincidence. Isn't it a strange thing? What if all of this is just coincidence? 
that somebody actually says that. One of the lords, one of the smart guys of the Philistines says, you know what? Have we considered maybe it just happened? I mean, the ark came to Ashdod and all these things happened. Then it moved to Gath and it happened there. Then it went to Ekron and wherever it went, hemorrhoids, mice, and death. But what if? It's crazy, isn't it? If these are spiritual people who believe in gods who work behind the scenes and they're not convinced. It's a crazy answer. It's sad, but you and I are like this too. I needed that. And I've been praying specifically for that, and I got that. Did God give it, or is it just a coincidence? A few months ago, I got a bill. You know what those are. I got a bill, and I thought, I don't know how I'm going to pay that. I, I I don't really have the money for that bill. And I noticed that I had a missed call on my, on my phone. And so I called him back. It was one of the members of our church. He says, hey, are you at the office? I wanna come up and give you something. And I said, yeah, I'm here. And he, he comes up and he hands me pretty much exactly what I need to pay that bill. And I thought, what a coincidence. How lucky am I? I didn't think that. And I called Laura and I said, you're not going to believe this. And she says, she she did in fact believe it. You know why? Because we've seen the Lord do that multiple, multiple times. That there have been so many times in our life where we have a need and the Lord acts as provider. (laughs) Who would have thunk? But it's what he does. So let's decide something today, Christians. Let's decide to just take the words coincidence and luck completely out of our vocabulary. I repent last week and the month before for talking about a potluck. No more. We're not ever having one again. We'll have the food and stuff. We'll just call it something else. There's no such thing as luck. And there's no such thing as coincidence. But there is a sovereign God who works behind every scene and is working out all things exactly how he wants them so that you will see him for who he is and you will give him glory. That's what we have. The Philistines doubt it. Pagans should doubt it. You and I shouldn't. We have a sovereign God. What was the plan here? Look, these cows, they'd never been yoked before. And I'm sitting there thinking, okay, I don't know a lot about cows, but I'm pretty sure that's an important detail. So I send a message to several of the men in this church who I think will have an answer for this because they're, they're, you know, they didn't live the last 10 years in Atlanta. They, they're from here, they're around here, they, are, they grew up around cattle, I guess. And I sent them all this message saying, hey, what do y'all know, know about cow yokes and stuff? Because I, I need to do some research. And one of them sent me back something that was so helpful. And it was a, it was a link to a website that this company might just make it. All he sent me was google.com. I was like, 
okay, fair, fair enough, let's go. And so I Googled it, and it worked. It gave me the answer I was looking for. So thank you guys for the help on that. So cows that have never been yoked, essentially, you got two cows and suddenly this wooden beam goes over both of them to where they can't, like they've done every moment of their life, go wherever they want, however they want. They are now stuck to one another. And if this one goes left, this one has to go left. But the thing is, cows have to be trained to do that. They don't just do it. You have to train them to work together so that they can actually move in tandem together. And without the training, it's just chaos. Well, that's the two cows they took. And then they took their calves away from them. And they took their calves and they put them back in the sheds at home. Now, what are mama cows going to do when their calves are taken from them? They're going to do everything they can to get back to those calves. They're going to really scream and let out noises because they want to be with their calves. The calves want to be with their mamas. And even if they weren't calves at home, where do cows want to go? They want to go home. They're not just going to take off wandering. You see, What's happening here is the Philistines are setting up this thing to see, is the Lord over this or not? And then in every decision they make, they're kind of stacking the deck in favor of this is not the Lord. But here's the thing about God. He likes a stacked deck. He does it all the time to himself. We have too many soldiers for this battle Take them to the river and see how they drink. If anyone just puts their head down into the water, send them home. But anybody who lifts their hands up, we're going to keep them and we're going to war with them. Jericho is a mighty fortress. I got a plan. Let's just send the trumpet section of the marching band. Let's see what happens. Goliath is massive and scary. He's a seasoned warrior, been fighting for decades. I know just the child I'm going to send to fight against him. Example after example after example of the deck being stacked. Why? So that the Lord can show his power. So that he can show and he will show that he can overcome anything. So friends, listen, if you are in a situation right now that seems utterly hopeless, you see no good coming out of it. You can't see how God will use it or work it out for your good. You can't see it at all. That's just where he likes to work. So don't give up hope. That's just the situation and like, where he wants to show his power. So open up your eyes and watch for him. And so they do this. They get the cart, they get the cows, they, they yoke them up, the calves are at home, they get the ark, they get the box of gold, and then they just let them go and they watch to see what happens. And we read this, that they started straight. That should have happened. Away from their home. That shouldn't have happened. Toward Beth Shemesh, and they weren't even crying out for their calves, they were just lowing as they went. And even though they'd never been yoked, it says they didn't turn to the right or to the left, that they took the best route, straightest route possible. They didn't even have GPS. 
And the five lords of the Philistines, these most powerful men, these probably quite frightening warriors, if you had to guess, they're out there. These men that had won this battle decisively have suddenly found themselves just walking seven miles following cows to watch them and see what happens. (laughs) Imagine it. It's harvest season. You're a Jew. You got your scythe out there in the fields and you're swinging, you're gathering, you're, 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 you're getting the harvest. And then you look up because you hear a noise and you see over the hill, two cows start coming. You look around, there, there's no driver, there's no person around them. It's what happened? And then there's a cart that comes over the hill too. And there's the sun glaring off of something back on the cart and it takes you a little while to realize that's the ark. It's what I've been told it looks like. I've never seen it, but that's the ark. And then a few minutes later, you notice that these five heads pop up over the hill too, and they're scary looking individuals. I know who that is. That's the bad guys. But you're so happy to see the ark that you rejoice. You drop your scythe and you go to the cart And you see what's going to happen. And then you notice that the cart stops in the field of your neighbor named Joshua. It's a great day in Israel. The ark of the Lord had been captured and now it's returned. And so they call the Levites together, those those priests who have been set aside to care for the ark. And they take those female cows and they offer them as a burnt offering to the Lord. What a day of rejoicing that was. Worship should be like that. It should be filled with joy and thanksgiving. But there was a problem in their worship. There was a problem happening here this day that just like the Philistines, they thought these Levites in Israel thought they could come before God how they wanted Let me give you some some clarity on this. For example, they offered these cows as a burn offering. They did it in joy. They did it in thanksgiving. They did it as as kind of a rejoicing, a party of it. But Leviticus 1.3 commands that only male cows can be sacrificed. Only bulls can be offered in sacrifice. They just came how they wanted They should have known better. The Levites definitely should have known better. And then in verse 19, it says that even in this rejoicing, God struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark. Now, we usually think what that means is kind of that Raiders of the Lost Ark thing that they pulled the lid off and they looked inside and then things got bad. It's not what it says. He struck them dead because they looked upon it, not in it. They looked at it. It seems to be saying that just like the Philistines, the ark had become something to just come and see, a circus attraction, come to Beth Shemesh and see the ark of the covenant. But Numbers 4.20 tells us that not just anyone could look upon the holy things. In fact, they weren't to look upon the ark at all. It says that if anyone looks at the holy things, even for a moment, they will die. That that was a command given by the Lord in numbers and the priests, the Levites should have known it. 
that these people can't just look upon this thing or they will die. The Levites should have known it. And so the first thing they should have done was say, the ark is back, let's build a shelter over it. But instead, they say, the ark is here. Let's make a side show out of it. And because they treated the Lord, his ark, his commands with indifference, 70 men died that day. Thank God he's not like that anymore, right? Or is he? I mean, you and I, we're to come to worship faithfully in honor and in reverence and in joy, it should be a privilege to us. We should take it as a serious duty and a joy of the Christian. But we don't. We come late. We're standoffish. We're indifferent. We're irreverent. Oftentimes, we won't sing, even though the Lord commands us to. We don't give an offering even though he calls us to. We don't serve as church even though he's gifted us to. Disobedient worship is not worship at all. It's rebellion. And the Lord shows here that he takes it seriously. Look, these, these 70 deaths forced these people to ask the question, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? But instead of seeking the answer, they immediately follow that question with another one. They say, to whom shall he go up away from us? That they send the ark away to Kiriath-Jerim to remain for decades to come. Look, it reminds me of our study in Mark. You remember when Jesus goes into the village and he's met by a man who refers to himself as legion because he is just indwelt and tormented by an army of demons, that he's, he's demon-possessed. He'd been terrorizing the city for who knows how long. Night and day, it says. They'd try to stop him and they couldn't. And then Jesus shows up And he looks at this man who's possessed by demons and he says, get out. And suddenly their neighbor is freed from this. He's set free. And what do the people do? They see this power of God. They see this goodness of God, even at the life of their neighbor, and they don't want him. They ask him to leave. You ever wondered what incredible blessing would have been there for them if they would have just seen that power and that goodness and just fallen down on the ground before and say, we want you. We want you here with us. They ask the question, who's able to stand before the holy God? Psalm 24 tells us, he who has clean hands and a pure heart and who does not lift up his soul to what is false or swear deceitfully. Look, I I remember the first time I actually started to experience the blessing of God in corporate worship. When coming together with my brothers and sisters and singing to God, taking communion together, praying, sitting under the preached word together, the first time it actually became such a means of joy and encouragement, I had never experienced it before. And that may be true of some of you, that for you, this right here is just checking the box and doing the thing. 
You know, when it started to really impact and change me was when I, when I first started setting my mind and my heart each Sunday toward expecting to meet with and hear from the Lord where I started to actually ask him and pray to him to move in our time together and where, where I came in thinking, I want to revere the Lord and respect the Lord and honor the Lord and obey the Lord, where those things became a priority. And it was amazing. But too often, our gathering just becomes about the furniture, the means, the message, or the methods, the setting, rather than the Savior. That we want just enough of God and his worship to not impede the life that we want to live. We say to him what he says to the oceans, this far you can come, but no farther. You hear these laws. I just read to you out of Leviticus and Numbers. You hear these laws. You couldn't touch the ark. You couldn't come close to the ark. You couldn't look inside or upon the ark. You couldn't do it for the holiness of God would destroy you. But notice what happens. The ark for you and for me, the ark of the covenant is Jesus Christ. That he is the one who puts on flesh and tabernacles among us. And when we come to his holiness, when we bow down, when we trust in him and confess him as Lord, rather than being destroyed by his holiness, we're actually empowered by it. That we become grafted in, we become united with him. We, we are given clean hands and a pure heart, that he becomes ours and we become his by grace through faith. And instead of it being stand back, don't look, don't touch, we read and we hear and we say things like John says, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, we've seen it with our eyes, which we looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we've seen it. We testify to it. We proclaim it to you. That which was from the Father, it was made manifest to us. We've seen it. We've heard it. We proclaim so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. Even here in this ark, even in the, the 70 deaths, even in the return of it, we've gathered today to worship Christ, to hear from Christ, to proclaim Christ as the deliverer of sinners. Yet that's the point of our gathering today. And hear me. If you will approach him here and in your life with honor, with longing, with expectation, with obedience, if you search for him with all your heart, you will find him in his power and in his goodness and in his mercy just being poured out on you. There's more, Christian. There's more he wants to do. Don't settle for less. So of what indifference of what disobedience, of what sin do you need to repent? And the question's ultimately this. What is it in your life, what is it in my life that is keeping us from knowing him and experiencing him fully? What do we do? We confess that. We seek his pardon. We trust in his son and we know without a doubt that he is faithful, that he is just, 
that he will not only forgive us, but he will purify us so that we can better see him. That's the goal. That's the promise. Let's go.